Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Robin Thede works hard, incredibly hard. She always has. She probably always will. She was the first ever black woman to be the head writer on a late night talk show. That was The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. Before that, she was head writer of Queen Latifah's daytime talk show. Robin is a Second City alumna, the former host of the BET show The Rundown, and an actor who's appeared on Key and Peele, Insecure, and Central Park. As if that wasn't enough, she also created and stars in the Emmy-winning series A Black Lady Sketch Show, which is in its fourth season on HBO. As the title suggests, A Black Lady Sketch Show is a sketch show created by and starring black ladies. The show's crazy funny, of course. Robin and her team are some of the best at what they do. But what makes a Black Lady sketch show so unique is its specificity. Thede and her co-stars cover church politics, family reunion line dancing, and, as you'll hear in this clip, hair care-specific weather forecasts. Things clear up on Thursday, but don't break out the flat iron just yet, or I foresee a ton of breakage. As we head into the weekend, the cold front will pass. Temperatures will soar into the 90s, so it'll be a great time to break out those protective styles. That's right, it's looking like box braids for brunch, ladies. For the rest of the weekend, I'm going to recommend a leave-in conditioner, or better yet, not leave in your house. Uh, Robin Thede, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Is it weird that I um, not sing along, but that I speak along when I hear clips from the show. I love it. Uh, number one. Number two, you're in good company. I uh, The only other like true sing-along I've ever had was one of the Pointer Sisters. She just full-on sang along with her own song in the studio, and it was yeah, the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. Truly. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Robin, I think that sketch speaks to the fact that you, at this point, you and your colleagues are the James Thurbers of um, hair care humor. Wow. Wow. High praise. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> You're a Midwesterner. You should know these things. Should I? Who is it? I don't know. A humorist. I wanted to just go along with it. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, of course. A legendary yes, humorist. Um, Shame on me. But yeah, we definitely have a leaned into the hair care this season. I think people thought we were going to do that much more in the first two seasons, we had a little bit of it, but this season, we just didn't care. We were like, we have so many more hair-related things to say. But it's not what the whole series is about. But yeah, we don't shy away. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't assert that it was. <laughs> but it does feel like one of those things that if you have a show called A Black Lady Sketch Show, there are cultural points of reference that you might not get to do jokes about elsewhere because you'd lose oh, too many yeah. people. <laughs> or they would, yeah, they would just be confused. And the great thing about this show is that we just don't care. Uh, and you, it's why I purposely titled it A Black Lady Sketch Show, because I didn't want anyone to be surprised. And I feel like, you know, you're coming along for that ride. And uh, people have told me it's actually pretty educational. <laughs> when you were pitching the show or conceiving of the show, did you think of it first and foremost as a show for black women or did you were you thinking about 
how to, for lack of a better word, cross over, how to translate the experience of a group of Black women to people from other cultural categories. You know what's interesting? People ask me things like this, and I, I, for me, it's neither. We, um, when I first created the show and continuing until now, my only goal has been to celebrate Black women and to break open an area of comedy that was so white male dominated, which is sketch, right? Like an article in the New York Times, a profile of the show recently said that in our opening, we had more Black women than any other people had had in the cast of their shows in decades, you know? And so I think for me, it was about just carving out our own space and being able to create freely from our point of view. So it wasn't about only catering to Black women. It also wasn't about bringing in non-Black people to our humor. It was about providing a space for us as artists to be able to um, freely create. And I think that, uh, in a selfish way, ends up actually accomplishing both of those goals without even intending to, right? Like, I think the show has been able to pull in people who normally wouldn't have found themselves watching something called the Black Lady Sketch Show. And it's also been able to make Black women feel seen. So I think we've been able to accomplish all three. What's it like when you're pitching sketch ideas in the room? Do you ever grapple with those questions when you're doing that? Oh, no. We're so focused on just doing the funniest show possible. Like, I think if we just focus on the comedy, it prevents us from veering off into areas that feel like something that comes from like a fear or a or a belief about the industry or the audience. I think what we've proven in three seasons is that even though we're called a Black Lady Sketch Show, our audience is widely diverse and appreciates it from a variety of perspectives, which which I love, because I think it's bringing that celebration of Black women to the masses and being able to have them appreciate, you know, the kind of humor that we're doing um, in a new way. Robin, when I when I met you, you were probably best known as the co-host of the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards streaming <laughs> yes. pre-show. Yes. Now you have more jobs than a human being could possibly imagine. <laughs> it's true. You know, you're on screen for at least much of the show, um, yeah. maybe most, and you are running the show. <laughs> And you have a production yep. company and, and a deal for your production company as well now. Yeah. Um, when you're in production for the show, like, what does that mean practically for your life? <laughs> oh, oh, I thought that was a joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what life? Um, when we're in production, my friends just know, all right, we'll see you next year. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like half my year is gone. So I make the show 11 months and 28 days of the year. People are like, why does six episodes of television take so long? And I'm like, well, hiring, writing, pre-production, production, post, press. And then I'm right back in it the next season. So I do every step of the process of making the show because I am the showrunner. And so for people who don't know what that means, that means I am the person running the company. I'm running... Um, you know, the whole, the whole production from from hiring to delivering it to the world. So there's no process that I don't touch. So for my life, it means that a lot of my friends I've hired on the show so I can see them. <laughs> and the other ones, we make time when we can. One thing I've done for work-life balance, though, since the beginning is tell my crew and my cast that we don't work weekends. So 
a lot of time I spend that recuperating or reading other scripts for my production company or doing press or whatever, occasionally having recreation. Uh, but certainly the 12 weeks of the year that we're actually filming, it just means my life kind of shuts down and focuses on the show. But because I am in so much of it, you're right. It's important that I'm delivering a great performance and it's important that I'm not thinking about, oh, what are those um, union things we need to think about for the crew for next week? Or what are the overages in the budget? Or what are the costumes for next week? Are they already at the tailor? Are they here? You know, I can't be thinking about that. As soon as action is called, I have to take all of that off and perform. And if I don't do that, then, you know, I am not doing myself for the show just service. So I think, you know, it goes in waves, but there are definitely parts of the year that are pretty all-encompassing, for sure. We've got even more to get into with Robin Thede after the break. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Robin Thede. She's a writer and actor. She was the head writer for Larry Wilmore's The Nightly Show. She hosted the BET show The Rundown with Robin Thede. These days, she's the creator and star of the terrific comedy series A Black Lady Sketch Show. It's in its fourth season on HBO. One of your first sort of high-powered jobs was working with Larry Wilmore. Um, He was a guest on this show many years ago, maybe 10 plus years ago. And he's obviously one of the funniest dudes. And people who know him as a performer know that he's one of the funniest dudes from his work on The Daily Show or his own show or or as a stand-up comic long ago, whatever it is. But the the thing that struck me as I was like, oh, gosh, I think this might be the smartest person I've ever talked to. (laughs) Yeah, he really is. He really is. Like, I think funny people are often smarter than average, but it's not a requirement. No. <laughs> and I was I was really stunned. And, and he's the kind of guy who really seems like he has some perspective on the game and knows the levers. So when you got that job, which, you know, I don't think you even expected to be interviewing for the head writer gig on that show. I think you went in as for a staff writer. No, that's what he said in some interview, but oh. that's not true at all. I came in there <laughs> ready to be head writer and I I had a, like a I had a whole binder. I think I told you this years ago, but I had a whole binder that was what I would do as head writer. He said in an interview I was being interviewed as staff writer. I don't think that's true. I went in fully knowing I was being interviewed. Maybe it he thought like, that. Yeah, I mean it sounds like Robin, maybe the issue here. <laughs> Is that I went in cocky? Well, it worked. (laughs) He brought you in to interview as a staff writer. You came in with head writer binders. Yeah, I sure did. I was like, here's what I would do as your head writer. Here's the bits I would do. Here's how I'd run the room. Here's the writers I would hire. Yeah. He was like, okay. What did you have? So tell me about what you had in the binders when you went to interview for the show. Okay. So back then, this was 2014. I was the head writer at Queen Latifah and I had just left because I knew Larry was about to do a show and I really wanted to be on it. And I was like, okay, I didn't want to do daytime anymore. Queen, working at Queen Latifah was great, but I was kind of just doing that to get my head writer 
legs under me and this was, um, it was queen a great latifah's experience. daytime talk daytime show, talk show. but yeah, it yeah, had yeah. some other stuff it had some kind of uh it had some ellen vibes to it it did we did a lot of sketch and that was the reason i went because i was like i want to incorporate more sketch because i want to i was auditioning for the daily show and snl and it was all the things i wanted to do but couldn't quite crack so we were doing a lot of that on that show and so I left there in May or June, and by August, I think, I had the interview, which I thought was for Head Writer. And so the show was called The Minority Report. I don't know if you remember this. When they first picked it up, it was called The Minority Report, and Fox was doing a reboot of The Minority Report movie as a TV series. And so Fox said, cease and desist with that title, and (laughs) Larry said, I know what what it should be called. We should... We're following The Daily Show. Let's call it The Nightly Show. And that was like genius. So at the time when I went in to interview, though, it was still called The Minority Report. So I took uh, the poster of The Minority Report with Tom Cruise on it and superimposed Larry's head onto Tom Cruise's body. And (laughs) in it, it literally just it had like desk bits. It had green screen bits. It had ideas for correspondence, um, for writers. And a bunch of those writers we ended up hiring like Jordan Carlos and Holly Walker and all these amazing folks. So um, we kind of just used it as the manual to staff up the show. It was amazing. I mean, that was a time when there was this question, which was like, what is a late night show with a black person hosting? Yeah, Um, for sure. That, you know, I mean, sure, to a certain extent, Magic Johnson had answered that question years before. Well, Arsenio Hall and Chris Rock did pretty good shows, but, but, but it had been a minute. You know, there had been a many uh, numbers of years that we hadn't had a black late night host who had stayed around for any amount of time. So, yeah, it was a big deal. And remember, Jon Stewart was still on The Daily Show at that time and Colbert had just left and we were following uh, in his footsteps. So, right. That's what I was about to say. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, you were trying to figure out how to be. In addition to, you know, a brainy black guy on TV show, Mm -hmm. a compliment to The Daily Show and a replacement for Colbert. Yeah. Which, you know, is a lot of things to be. (laughs) Yeah. And I think in the first season, there was a lot of like confusion with viewers about like, well, is this going to be my new Colbert? But the show obviously had nothing to do with the Colbert Report. We were like, well, why would we even try to do anything like that? That's been done and done masterfully. So, and then in our second season, John left and Trevor came in and then it was like, okay, well, what is our lead in now? Like, what is that show's tone going to be? And there are two black men. So, you know, we just wanted to make sure that we weren't like repeating each other or, you know, following any sort of similar point of view. Now, Trevor and Larry have completely different points of view. And I think we did a really nice job distinguishing between the two, but it is interesting because our ratings at the time were huge compared to what ratings are now, but they were still obviously not good enough for Comedy Central to keep us on after two seasons. And I don't know. I think in hindsight, I don't know if that decision would have been made if the powers that be would have looked at the landscape with future eyes. But who would know that, you know? So I think what was done what was was done, and everybody's still better off for having done those two amazing seasons. What did you learn from working with Wilmore on that show? A guy who is, of course, talent, but like probably a writer and showrunner and, you know, creative person 
first and foremost, even beyond his work as talent. Absolutely. I learned so much. I mean, I literally just saw him last night. I talked to him all the time. He's amazing. Um, he still advises me. Um, on that show, I think the things I learned back then were that as a head writer, it wasn't my job to make people happy. It was my job to provide a great place to work. And I think that was a big deal for me because I was very much a people pleaser when I got to the nightly show. And I had spent most of my career, although I was a performer, I was a journeyman performer who was just kind of flitting from one canceled show to the next. And I was also primarily a writer. I wrote four comedians for 12 years before I got to the nightly show. So I was very good at mimicking comedian styles and being able to write in their voice, but I was not good at writing in my own. And although I was doing a lot of live sketch, I was still writing characters that were not me, right? So he prepared me in so many ways to create my own late night show and develop my own voice in late night. And then eventually, once I got canceled, I went back to my roots in sketch, but I went back as a better person, as a better writer, as a better performer, as a better knower of my own voice, you know, and that was because of Larry, for sure. Even on his show, where I was his head writer, he encouraged me to do pieces on camera, and I ended up being a correspondent on like four days of the week, even though I was still head writer. He encouraged me to find pieces that expressed my opinions about the topics that we were covering, and not only on panel, but in in comedy sketches, you know, and in pieces. And um, you know, I did Black Lady Sign Language, which was one of the most popular clips from that show. And, you know, it's like, I'd look at it now and go, duh, it was just like laying the steps to get to a Black Lady sketch show. So yeah, but he really encouraged that and continues to. What's something on that show that you figured out about yourself as a writer and performer rather than as a, you know, supporting figure for others? That I had something to say. And I learned what my likes and dislikes were. And I knew these things, right? My parents are very politically active. And I guess that's an understatement. My mother's in the House of Representatives. <laughs> yes. Your mother is a, is a state yeah. rep in Iowa, It's right? a state rep in Iowa, yeah. But so, uh, yeah, I think for me, I learned just how to communicate my voice. It's not like I didn't know my opinions, but I didn't know how to translate that into entertainment. And so I learned that through him and how to make those things valuable, and how to make people pay for that. What's something that you did on that show or on your show that followed that, your own late night show, that you were throwing at the wall that failed completely? Oh, that failed? Oh, yeah. gosh. Well, you thought we were going to talk about your successes, Robin? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that I have to sit here and really think about what failed. Um, oh, I I'll say sometimes when I was on panel... I didn't express myself as eloquently as I wanted to. And so in the moment, learning to be better about expressing how I felt in a way that was funny, but that also wasn't hurtful. It's really important for me not to punch down. I don't think, I mean, no one like came for me and was like, you hurt me. But I think sometimes I would watch it back and go, that's not really what I meant to say. So I think it just made me a little more thoughtful about how I communicated ideas in terms of being able to say something that was like a soundbite, but also effective and efficient. You know, I think there's too much of this like droning on that I still do, but, <laughs> but I this think it helped me with style that. style content? <laughs> Here for it. Here for it. <laughs> Hashtag take your time on NPR. 
Um, yeah, I think that was one of the big things. I think there were a lot of panel nights where I was like, oh, I didn't say anything great, you know? So, but that helped me hone my voice. So once I went to my late night show and was Robin the host, it it made a big difference. I My Midwest accent really came out when I said that. Did you hear that? I said, Robin the host. <laughs> wow. Let's hear Robin Thede from her show, The Rundown, which ran on BET in 2017 and 2018. And this is Robin offering a take on a networking event uh, that was making headlines at the time that was called Come Meet a Black Person. And just when you thought networking couldn't get any more uncomfortable, somebody in Atlanta made it even worse. A networking event is tackling a thorny issue head on. It's called Come Meet a Black Person, and it's inviting people to do exactly that. Come meet a black person, just one? Which one? Please don't let it be Tone Loke. I, I don't have anything against him. They just say never meet your heroes. <laughs> Still a great joke. <laughs> love Tone Loke humor. I love to bring up people that I think people should not forget about. You know, like, don't forget about Tone Loke, please. Anyway, you were talking about the rundown, sorry. Yeah, we were talking about the rundown. So uh, on the rundown and on the Wilmore show, you were performing as yourself. You've done sketch all along. Mm -hmm. And your sketch work isn't what I would call personality driven, right? Like some sketch performers are doing riffs on themselves. Oh, right. No, that's not me. You know, there are some sketch performers who, who have a big persona and they find ways to twist it 20% here and there to and change the wig. Right. And you are a very transformative sketch performer. Thank you. That is my goal. Why is that why is that your goal? For me, I think the magic of sketch is being able to completely become someone else and make people believe that. I want people to say where did you go? I think um one of the sketches that people <laughs> cite a lot, there's a lot, but the 227 reboot we did where I did an impression of Jack A, uh, people are always like, how? I thought that was her and that you guys had just CGI'd her face to make her look like that period. But uh, yeah, I think for me, it stems from growing up and wanting to kind of disappear, you know, being super poor and bullied and all of that stuff. And I know that sketch helped me disappear. I could become someone else and become someone I wasn't confident enough at the time to be. I grew up with a stutter. I didn't I kind of went in and out of having friends until I went to like junior high and high school. Then I became more popular. But um, in my younger days, when I started mimicking and doing impressions and creating them in, in single digits age, I probably was looking for an escape. And I think now I just find that a fun place to play and I don't find myself nearly as interesting as I find the characters I play. <laughs> I think I have a, a relationship with them and I develop one and I I love getting lost in them. I mean, there's no freer time for me than between action and cut when I'm playing a character that is so far from me. Uh, everything goes away in my brain, like the stress of uh, the day, the show, my life, whatever, is gone. And I think that's really magical. I mean, imagine, I think, for people, if you could become someone else, it's it's the concept of severance, right, in a way. It's like, if you could become someone else or not have a memory of 
a period in the day so that you kind of release that anxiety that we all carry with us at a lower high grade level. It's magic. So for me, that's what these characters are. I get to really disappear and turn everything off for those few minutes when I'm playing them. Well, few minutes, 12 hours. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really magical. I mean, not to get weird about it, but like that's that's what it does for me. We'll wrap up with Robin Thede in just a minute. When we come back from our break, Robin is biracial. She grew up in a pretty white suburban part of Iowa. She'll tell us about the challenges that presented and why she identifies as Black today. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And I'm Emily Heller. Wow, Emily, we've been doing this podcast for 10 years. I know, but hey, don't worry. You can jump in at literally any episode and hear us talk about some of our favorite stuff, caterpillars becoming butterflies. Martha Stewart flying around in a private jet full of trees. Yes, you heard me right, trees. Neighbors becoming enemies. Just kidding. (laughs) Whatever messed up stuff we can find on Wikipedia. Our impeccable taste in everything from dogs to TV shows to bodily functions. And horses. Lots and lots of horses. Come for our horned up rants about the world. Stay for the catchy theme songs. You might not learn anything, but we're a good hang. Baby Geniuses. Every other week on MaximumFun.org. Baby Geniuses. Tell us something we don't know. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Robin Thede. She's the star and creator of HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show. I have to say that when you describe the circumstances that led you to want to transform as a kid, and you you mentioned your stutter, which I didn't know about, and, you know, poverty, I think my expectation was to hear you say that transformation was built into your life as a, first of all, as a multiracial person, and second of all, as a black person in Iowa, Um, Mm. a multiracial person anywhere, I think, and certainly to some extent, any black person in America. But those things are sort of like, they leave some amount of transformation required for getting by day to day. Yeah. You know what's interesting? My parents, my mom is black from Chicago. My dad is white from a farm of German immigrants in Iowa. Um, And they met in college. And my dad said, that woman with the Afro will be my wife. And they have been married 50, two years short of 50 years. Um, Still best friends. And I think the thing that they did so well with me and my sisters is they said, look, Yes, you have a black parent, you have a white parent, but the world will see you as black. You are black and you will walk through this world as a black woman and we will do everything we can to prepare you for that life. And so there was no confusion. I know some people are kind of like, well, I'm mixed or I'm biracial. Like, I don't say I'm biracial. I just say I'm black. That's who I am, you know, and it's at no shade to like my white family members. It's just that they don't look at me as like... I don't believe that white people look at biracial people as biracial. I think they just look at them as black. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But and who knows? I don't know. I can't speak for all white people. But I just feel like for me, there was never any confusion about who I was. There was never. I understand the concept of code switching, but I never really did it because I wasn't taught to really do that. I think it was important for me to succeed academically 
but not at the cost of who I was. And my parents were just really like, you know, I had people in my family that were Black Panthers in the 70s. Like, we just didn't really have that sort of mentality. So I think for me, I was always very clear on who I was. And the times when I didn't like who I was when I was in elementary school was because I didn't really like the people I was around and I was not treated well by them. And um, it was tough. It was tough. We were one of only a few black kids in that school and I dealt with a lot of crap. And so for me, it only dug deeper into, I guess, who I was. But so I wasn't trying to escape, escape who I was. I was just trying to escape the stress of the environment. And so I think that was more of that. But I was always pretty comfortable in who I was. And I knew that the bullies were stupid and I knew that they were wrong. Like, I was like, I'm great. Like, I just couldn't understand why they were so mean to me. And I didn't really equate it with racism as a six-year-old, but, you know, learned that later. Um, also, I just had a family that supported everything. So for me, it just became about playtime. And the escapism was, yes, to get away from bullies mentally, but it was also fun. I just also found it really, really, really fun. So, yeah, I think that was more of it, but... Who knows? I mean, it may have informed it on some subconscious level, but for the most part, I didn't really have any issues with that. Um, and there's more black people where I grew up than you would probably think. But I had to get to a different school <laughs> and move to a different neighborhood before I met them. <laughs> for sure. Can I ask you what kind of crap you had to deal with? Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember playing with a girl in third grade and I went over to her house and she had two dolls and she didn't want me to play with either of them. And I was like, why did you invite me over here? And so she kept pulling the dolls away from me. It was just like being bratty. And she said, give me that doll. Give me that doll. Give me that doll, you Sambo. And I was like, what? And then she called me the N-word too. And the N-word I knew. And I knew that was bad. So I left and I walked all the way home. I tried to call my mom and she was, I think she was working a second job. So no one was home. So I always had a key. So I just walked home and it was far. Um, and I was eight and I got home and then my parents got home and I told them what happened. And they obviously had a very detailed conversation with her parents. But uh, it was just like stuff like that. Like there was definitely a lot of racism, but then there was also people that just picked on me. I was little. I had a stutter well into elementary school. They make fun of the way I talked, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think for me, it was just typical bully that black kids in a very white environment go through. And then when I got to junior high, my junior high was like 50% black, which was great. My high school was like, I don't know, 30% black. But by then I had already found my people, my community, and it was a more balanced approach. And the white people weren't as racist as they were in elementary school. Look, I lived in a like trailer trash area and like that trailer park fed the school, you know? So I'm not saying that all people that live in trailers are trash, but those people were for sure. Like, we had a dude that was, like, murdered on our steps, you know? It was like, we just saw a lot of bad things, you know? Um, uh, there were meth heads and prostitutes and, you know, it was a lot of bad stuff going on around us. So I think out of that, it makes sense why I wanted to escape that environment, you know? Uh, not only physically, but mentally and kind of creating some of these characters. At least that's what I've discovered in therapy. <laughs> You know, but it makes sense, right? I could have done something way worse <laughs> with my life. 
as a person with half a family that's white, who, you know, lives as a black person in America, do you feel like you know white secrets <laughs> that other black people you know might not what? know? What a great question. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. I think that I've been... Okay, so some of them aren't massive secrets, but, like, I've seen some culinary choices that are... Quite interesting. <laughs> but yeah, just in the way that... Those may just be Iowan culinary secrets. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Definitely. No question. Do they involve corn? <laughs> <laughs> and many other things. But yeah, I think there are some cultural traditions that are different, but also like conversations, like especially when they don't know you're listening or in the other room. For sure. That happened. I'm like, oh, that's how they talk about us when we're not here, you know? And again, that's not all white people, but like, yeah, sure. I definitely think I've been privy to some things that, you know, other folks may not have. But I think, you know what, to be truthful, every black person in this country, I always say, is in a white immersion program from the time they grow up. <laughs> yeah. Because we are, right? <laughs> like, we're inundated with white culture, especially growing up in the in the 80s and 90s. Like, I... Definitely. And it wasn't a function of Iowa. There weren't a lot of black people on television or in movies. It was like Eddie Murphy and Whoopi Goldberg. And that was pretty much it, you know? And I mean, that wasn't it, but you know what I'm saying? Like it was, it was a much whiter world and a much more heteronormative, cis, white, male dominated world than it is now. So yeah. But that does make me wonder where are those secrets going? If we're in this sort of like very diverse world where people like really embrace differences, like where are those secrets going now? Like, are they just being kept closer to the best? I don't know. I want to ask you about a sort of inside baseball character that's one of your recurring characters on the show. It's a parody of a corner of African American culture that I think a lot of white people don't know that much about. The character's name is Dr. Hadassah Olayinka Ali Youngman. Pre-PhD. Pre-PhD. Very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you gotta put her you gotta she, put her title in there. <laughs> she's also pre-Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah, she is. Thank you very much. She is a female riff on this cultural category called a hotep. Yep. Known as a hotep. For people in our audience who don't know what that is. My explanation will not help. Okay. <laughs> A hotep is a, it's a silly name for someone, usually a man who, well, because we've coined the term hotep. So a hotep is a man who believes that women should be seen and not heard, shouldn't really have as much to do with finances or anything outside of raising kids. You know, there's different ways you can be a hotep. Some of them are very like, and I'm talking in the extreme sense. I'm not, yeah. I'm talking like the really ridiculous. I'm not talking about like black nationalists or black people who are just like down for the cause. Like I'm talking about the people who are like, you know, some people say that they're like demeaning to women, that they don't believe in traditional education. So a lot of them like found their own schools and the knowledge is kind of all BS. And, um, but it's, it's rooted in this really pure, um, intent to build up the black community. And there are many people that are called hoteps who I don't believe are hoteps. They're just like really like, you know, down for the cause militant black people, which that is not who I'm making fun of. I'm making fun of the like 
off their rocker people who are like, you know, spouting all sorts of conspiracy theories about 5G giving us COVID or whatever, you know? And so this character, Dr. Hadassah Ali and Gali Youngman, pre-PhD, is the female version of that. She's a hertep, so-called, as we have named her. And she is... um Always has lots of conspiracies, you know. She thinks that everything that bacon is being, uh, the swine industry is uh, funding the destabilization of the black community. That basically they want us to love bacon so that we somehow fall apart as a community. (laughs) So it's like things like that, like the really ridiculous conspiracy theories. And then some of them we try to root. It's like for every crazy four jokes, we try to root some of them in real Info Like she says this year in the career day sketch that UPN was systemically, you know, dismantled after they made their money off of black shows, which a lot of us know to be true. You know, so it's like what I try to do is like even when she's saying something that has a ring of truth to it, it still sounds ridiculous. But I want people to go, wait a minute, some of that wasn't terribly crazy because I want them. It's kind of gaslighting the audience, honestly, a little bit, but I want them to not write her off totally because I know people like her and I love them. Like this really is a tribute. Like people like, oh, you're coming for hoteps and plenty of self-proclaimed hoteps definitely uh, needed to get blocked uh, by me on social media because they said horrible things to me and have over the years, but that's okay. But I'm like, well, it obviously rang true, you know, if you were offended. (laughs) But I try not to punch down. Like, this woman really is a love letter to some people in my life who I know and who really make me laugh. So, you know, she's fun. She's fun to play. And my hope is that we're laughing with her as much as we are at her. But I don't know. People get different joy out of her for different reasons. Let's hear a, a little bit of my guest, Robin Thede, on a black lady sketch show performing as uh, Dr. Hadassah Olayinka Ali Youngman. That's right, it's me, Dr. Hadassah Olayinka Ali Youngman. Google me, then throw your smartphone in the trash. It's making you stupid. She, she, 5G was created to infiltrate our brains with the devil's propaganda. TikTok, TikTok, you're wasting your fertile years on the ground. The only five Gs I recognize is the five bloods. Five triumphant black men going back to steal the oppressor's gold from Asia. Meanwhile, in this country, the only way five black men can gather is if they're playing basketball. I reject verses. Why would I ever celebrate our black icons battling each other? Newsflash, it's us versus them. I mean, it's one of those things where, uh, (laughs) you know, you mentioned gaslighting. Like, given that the entire cultural apparatus of the United States and much of the world and the historical and educational apparatuses of the United States and much of the world have been based on white people gaslighting people of color. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or just murdering them, but yes. (laughs) Very fair. Very fair. Um, But, you know, like that, ambivalence that you describe that sort of like fondness and a little bit of side eye at the wackiness like reflects that when you have to create your whole own thing you know it's hard and you know COINTELPRO was real (laughs) you know what I mean (laughs) at the end of the day it's like uh I went to see Dick Gregory speak when I was in high school Ah, and 
it was amazing. He was so funny and so uh, it was so much more than I hoped it would be. He also at one point described how the CIA had disappeared. I think it was twenty thousand people during the Watts riots, like literally dis- made them disappear. Yeah, and I was like, okay, well, I'm not following you down that one, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Have you done the research? <laughs> But like, I also know that, you know, my father, who was a veterans peace activist, was a target of like, there's, he has an Absolutely. FBI file. You know what I mean? Like, pe- they, his phones were tapped. And so there's a certain amount of you just want to be like, I don't know if, you know, maybe Eric Abadu thinks some numbers are more magical than other numbers, but that's fine. I love her. <laughs> like- Listen, I think there's a ring of truth to a lot of things that seem ridiculous. And then there's a lot of ridiculous things that are just ridiculous. But I think the fun in exploring that, especially in this character, is that it goes back to what I was talking about before. It's relatable because we all know people, like you said, like who have done and said things that were like, that's crazy. Wait a minute, though. You know, and I think it's up for us to parse that information about what we believe and what we don't. But I think constantly questioning is something that is really fun to explore in a comedic way. And, um, you know, it's it, people. It's arguably the most popular character on the show, and so I've been told. And so I think there's obviously some truth there to, to people who feel like they know this person. It's very popular to me. I don't know if you can see through our video conference, but I'm wearing my swap meat beads in tribute. Oh, honestly, they're beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> I think the fact that you are a woman and you are performing this character as a woman gives you an opportunity to engage in a pretty tricky cross-critique of the misogyny embedded in some of these ideologies, like some of the Jordan Peterson-iness of some of these ideologies that, that can only come in a context where you are sort of protected enough by the composition of the show and the cast and so on and so forth, that you can combine that with your fondness and not feel like you're having to get in a fight with yourself. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I'm not, she's not spouting a true political platform. This is for comedy, right? So No, it's very silly. Like we should emphasize how silly it is. Super silly, you know? And like, I definitely am not trying to come for any one person or any group of people. Like she just makes me laugh. And I think, you know, people have drawn comparisons to the Oswald Bates character, the prison kind of theologist or or philosopher that Damon Wayans played on in Living Color. I love that comparison because I do think that they're, uh, they live in the same world on the same plane, you know, and I think that that's fun. And I think that why can't we do that? I try really hard to poke fun in a way that's going to make people feel good at the end of the day. I really am not trying to like bash anybody or take anybody down. But at the same time, I need to be able to play characters that are that we know and that we see in the neighborhood. So that to me is what Dr. Hadassah represents. But it's also why I don't make her 100 percent wrong all the time. Maybe the way she delivers it is off-putting. <laughs> but if you think about it, and people tweet this all the time, they're like, but was she wrong about that one thing, though? <laughs> you know? So at one point in her tech masterclass in season one, she says, Jesus only ate his grandma's mac and cheese, and so do I. 
you know, and that's just like, it has nothing to do with religion, misogyny, any of those things. But it is a very commonly held black belief that we do not eat mac and cheese from people that are not either blood related to us or that we know incredibly well. So, you know, it's like she she can be the mouthpiece for things that are just so uh, ridiculous, but also that that threat of relatability, you know, and she gets to say it because she can say anything, you know, it's fun. <laughs> well, Robin Thede, thank you. It's it's nice to get to talk to you, pal, and I hope I'll see you again soon. It's so good to see you. I'm so proud of you. And you know what? The mustache is thriving. Thank you. I just want to say that for the listeners. Thank you. It's really thriving. Robin Thede, one of the best, legendary pal. You can catch the new season of A Black Lady Sketch Show on HBO. The first three seasons are on HBO Max. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. In my producer Richard Roby's apartment right now, uh, he says somebody is almost certainly doing cartwheels upstairs. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers, Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by the Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to the Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in those places. Follow us. We will share with you our interviews. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.